Uh, we're going to close out, hopefully, chapter 1 of Second Peter here, and then we'll get into some of the other chapters in the next few weeks and hopefully closing out uh, this little epistle. Uh, we've been in here for a couple of weeks and just going through exactly what, uh, or hopefully drawing out exactly what uh, the Apostle Peter has been wanting to uh, put into these churches' minds as he is writing this uh, second letter to these churches. And of course, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, Second uh, Peter is very much a farewell letter. Uh, you'll find that it, it has a lot of similarities in that way, I think, with Second Timothy in terms of the, the Apostle is writing... Uh, there in Second Timothy, Peter, or Paul, excuse me, was writing to Timothy and giving him sort of like, almost like closing words, final words before his departure. And in a very similar way, Peter is doing the same thing here through this letter, except it's to a much larger audience. Uh, he knows that his end is near. Uh, as, as he says, it testifies that in verses 14 and 15, that soon, as he says there, I must shortly, I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. He knows that. He, he understands the moment. He understands that this is a moment that he's not going to be able to have much longer. He's not going to be in this life much longer. And so this is why he's writing this letter now. He's writing this letter at this juncture because he wants to establish these churches and all the things that he said before. Uh, he, all, the th all the truth that he has, he has implanted into them through ministry and through his previous letters. He's wanting to be sure that they know, as he says in the opening verse, that this knowledge of this precious faith that they have through God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He's wanting to root them in that firmly established them in that. And such is why we've looked at in the last couple of weeks just the abundant assurance that we can have in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what it does to us and for us on a daily basis, how it changes our present and our future, that we can know that Jesus, as he says in verse 9, he has already purged us from all of our old sins. This is the assurance that we can have in the gospel. He wanted them to be sure that they are upheld uh, by these truths long after he's dead and gone. You see, the early church, as you might know, put a very high premium on apostolic words. So words from the apostles were held in very high regard, of course. So that's why when they were receiving a letter, it's not very much like we receive letters. Uh, although I will say I love getting mail. I love opening the mailbox. So, oh, I get an envelope because that's... Not normal. I don't react the same way to emails. Uh, but when I get old, quote, snail mail, I, I still get really excited. Um, but that, even more, uh, multiply that by like 10 times, and, and that's how the churches would view apostolic letters uh, in terms of how they were received. They were momentous occasions, usually where uh, one who would get up and read the whole letter before all of the congregation, usually an elder of the particular church or what have you. Uh, and the churches and the words of these letters were held um, in, in very serious regard. And such is why the letters of Paul and Peter uh, exist. That's why we have them. Uh, because these words from these uh, apostles were to be heard and regarded and, and received as though they are coming from God himself. That's how significant they are. That's how serious they were. That when they were being read, it was as if God was speaking to them. 
So if they informed you to do some such thing, if they, uh, if they informed you of changes that need to be made in your church or whatever, uh, it was as if God was telling you so just through the, the, the vocal cords of a particular elder and from the pen of Peter or Paul, as the case may be. Which, I always think about that, when, especially when the, the letter to the Philippians comes up. And at the end chapter, uh, where Paul calls out those two ladies who've been having an argument, just imagine uh, the elder who's been reading this the whole time, and then he gets to the last couple paragraphs, and he knows that these two ladies, they're in opposite corners of this congregation, and he has to call out their names. <laughs> I just always think about that moment as this guy is, is reading this letter. I, I just think it's funny, because um, I just imagine their faces. But that's sort of the saying, and that's the setting of these, of these letters. Uh, again, as we've been talking on Wednesday nights about uh, titles of uh, uh, and what makes a Christian, this is really what it means that they were Peter and Paul here were speaking in God's stead. They were functioning as His ambassadors, as His emissaries. They were ones that were going and they were speaking in the stead of God Himself, which ought to likewise give us a lot of pause. I think. Isn't it amazing that we're reading the epistles of St. Peter and St. Paul and other apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, even still today, 2,000-some years later? It's amazing to me that, that this is the promise of Scripture, you know, where Jesus says, not one jot or tittle of my word will pass away. <laughs> we are still reading and gleaning and diving into these Scriptures, these abundant truths, uh, centuries, two millennia later. I think that's incredible. But this is Peter's thrust here with this letter. He wants the church to be confident, to be certain of their knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they can, they can bank on that knowledge, even when he is gone. He wants them to be sure that even if there's no apostle in the pulpit, so to speak, ministering to them, even if there's no longer apostolic letters coming to them, their knowledge of Jesus was sure and certain and authoritative. That they could still be confident in that. That they could still have, as he says in verse 1, like precious faith that cannot fail. And why? Well, because Peter's words are prophetic. This is a word that comes through in the last several verses, verses 16 through 21. As, as you might know, that word prophecy, it comes up several times. <laughs> I've shared with some of you that I sort of have mixed feelings on the, words pro on the word prophecy. <laughs> Only because, um, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word prophecy, there's a very, uh, very stark and clear image that comes into my mind. <laughs> Uh, maybe, maybe this is your image too, I don't know, maybe it's not. But usually when I hear that word, I think of all of the, the end time stuff. Like, I think, I, I, I immediately picture like the timeline that I learned in Bible school about, you know, the, 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 the rapture's here and the tribulation's here and the, the millennial reign is here and all that kind of stuff. Uh, my mind immediately goes to that. Uh, and, and that's valid. That's okay. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. I, I, it's, it's valid to study those uh, prophetic scriptures and, 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 and study all of those out. But I would say that, uh, well, I would also say that the Old Testament prophets have a lot to say about the day of the Lord. If you read prophets like Amos and Joel and, and others, they talk about the day of the Lord, this day of reckoning that's coming a lot. 
it's very valid that we then think of those things in the end of all things, so to speak. But I would say this, and this is what I hope to sort of bring out from this particular text, is, is that that does not constitute the bulk of the idea of prophecy. And I would say actually, too, that stuff that's passages that are biblically prophetic are not sort of pigeonholed or ought not to be pigeonholed into just end times literature. Not by a long shot. And I think that's unfortunately the case because, in fact, if you look up the word prophecy in a thesaurus or a dictionary or whatever, one of the synonyms will come up, prediction. So now we have this weird sort of dichotomy where something that's biblically prophetic, we read in the modern context and assume it's talking about prediction because there's this synonymous sort of equation of those two terms. But in fact, I don't, I don't think what is biblically prophetic is actually biblically predictable. It's not the same sort of term. It's not the same sort of idea. The Old Testament prophets weren't divine weathermen who were just forecasting the divine forecast of the future. That's not what was happening. I think this assumption has led us to sort of have a, a almost a diminished view of what is biblically prophetic. Because I think that gravely misses the mark. We've talked about this a couple times, uh, especially when it comes to uh, end times things. This comes up a lot. Uh, if you read like Mark chapter 13 and Jesus gives that awesome, all of that discourse, he's talking about prophecy and stuff. But if you actually study that out, he's talking about a lot of different stuff. And it's right to think of all those things. And it's right to uh, sort of consider all those things. But again, I think if we just think about prophecy as end times related literature, I think we've gravely missed the mark of what is biblically prophetic. And actually, Peter is going to get into false prophets in chapter 2. Uh, in verses 1 through 3, he talks about that right away. And he's going to get into all of that. And I'm not meaning to say that, you know... Uh, Everyone who talks about revelation as prophecy is a false prophet. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that if that's all you think about when you're thinking about prophecy, that we need to, we need to broaden our horizons, so to speak. Also, too, I would say this. I don't know who you listen to. I mean, if you don't listen to me throughout the rest of the week, that's, that's fine. You can listen to other preachers. <laughs> but if you listen to a preacher and he says, I have a prophetic word from the Lord, run. Don't, don't, don't keep listening. <laughs> God, God's prophetic word is right here. You can be a prophet too, because this is his word. And this is all of his prophecy, all of his revelation. If, if someone says, I have received a prophetic word from the Lord, and they begin speaking, uh, I get really nervous. I get really cautious about that. Because this is his prophecy. This is his revelation, as he says in, in the book of Revelation, the revelation of the Son of God. And at the end, it talks about how anyone is cursed if they add unto it, if they add unto this prophecy, this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's especially true if that prophecy doesn't fit the criteria of what Peter lays out of what is truly prophetic. I think that's what we have here. I think uh, what we have in verses 16 through 21 of 2 Peter 1 is three sort of benchmarks or biblical criteria, so to speak, for prophetic scripture and how we can be sure of what prophecy actually is in terms of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So really quickly, I want to look at these three, three criteria, three benchmarks, three characteristics of prophetic scripture. 
First of all, number one, prophecy is factual. Prophecy is factual. Look at verses 16 through 18. Peter begins by reflecting on a very important moment. For we have not followed cunningly, cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Of course, he's using this moment. Of course, you might remember this is the moment of the transfiguration. The transfiguration is a really important moment in Jesus' life and in the lives of the apostles. And it's also important to remember that it's only Peter, James, and John who were witnesses of this moment. Jesus calls them out, and he brings them up onto the top of that mountain, and there he appears in all of his transfigured glory. And here Peter is using this moment to underline the fact that he had not made any of this up. You notice he says that, I haven't followed made-up stories. I haven't, follow, uh, I haven't followed sort of man-made nonsense. That's, that's not what I'm relaying to you. What I'm relaying to you is, is facts. <laughs> A factual event that took place that I was an eyewitness to. It's not some mumbo-jumbo that I've come up on my own. This is factual. I was an eyewitness. I was a spectator of the glory of God in the flesh. But I think what's most interesting to me is to note Peter's drastic sort of change in interpretation of what that event actually means. Because go with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9 is, is the, 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 the Mark version of this account. Because initially Peter didn't understand what was going on here. And that's very evident by what occurs. Look at verse 2 of chapter 9. After six days, Jesus taken, or Jesus, excuse me, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Literally, that word means revealed, the same as the word revelation in Revelation 1. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Launderer is for fuller. And there appeared unto them Elias and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered, <laughs> Peter, good old Peter, and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them and a voice that came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. <laughs> Peter's insistent. Did you notice that? He's, he's insistent, and we preached on this several months ago, uh, probably almost a year ago now. Um, but regardless, uh, Peter is really insistent on the fact that this is the culmination of the kingdom. Let's build tabernacles. Let's start the kingdom now. We got Moses here. We got Elijah here. Jesus, you're transfigured in all your glory. Uh, let's do it now. 
King, Peter is, is very much thinking in terms of, uh, of current messianic mindset, which is what? That the, that the Messiah was going to come and overthrow Rome, and he was going to be this divine sort of heavenly warrior who was going to make sure that Israel reclaims its seat as the, the preeminent power of the world by leading this sort of assault on Rome. And here he's saying, let's do this now, Jesus. It's almost as if you can imagine Peter saying, let's, 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 let's spend some time worshiping and let's get our swords and let's go. <laughs> he's so insistent on what this moment means. And of course, Jesus sort of reprimands him. And then they, they go down into the valley from that mountain, of course. And there's much more events that transpire to show that Jesus' work is much different. Jesus' work is a lot different than what Peter thinks it is. And now here, Peter understands all of it. See, here now, Peter is using the transfiguration in hindsight of what? The cross and the resurrection. He sees it now for what it is, which is what? This stunning display of majesty is, is, uh, sort of a, is given to Peter to show him sort of a glimpse uh, like that song. It's a foretaste of glory divine. But it's a foretaste of the glory divine that Jesus left behind in order to go to the cross. In order to go through the suffering of, of taking on all of that sin and shame and wreckage of all of our lives. It's that glory that Jesus says, I'm going to lay off in order to bring everyone up to glory. In fact, one commentator, I love it, he calls this not the Mount of Transfiguration, but the Mount of Renunciation. <laughs> Because it's almost as if Jesus is giving Peter a glimpse of the glory, not only that Jesus leaves behind and he renunciates, but also the glory that Jesus is now going to bring everyone into. Jesus lays his glory down so that we might all find it there at the cross. And Peter is here saying, this is what gives credence to everything. It all makes sense now. Because now I understand that the resurrection, it proves that this Jesus guy, he wasn't some healer. He wasn't some, some magic man. He wasn't some, some, so just a miracle worker from Nazareth. He is God in the flesh. And this is why he's talking. We haven't followed some cunningly devised fable. You know, we, we can talk about this in terms of the resurrection because uh, very early on, the apostles were accused of stealing Jesus' body. And all sorts of conspiracies that revolve around the resurrection and, and how, uh, how it really came to be that the tomb was empty and all those sorts of things that you know that Jesus actually didn't die. He just swooned. He, he fell asleep. And then the cold air of the tomb woke him up and all sorts of things like that, which is all a bunch of nonsense. And Peter is here basically saying that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not making this up. This isn't nonsense, he's saying. Uh, I, you can be sure of these words as if and as, as very much as if these are prophetic words because I was a spectator to them. I'm so sure of them. He's declaring that this gospel is prophetic because it's based on the facts of the transfiguration, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is based on those facts, not something that's fabricated or, or sort of unknown. It's, it's, it's what is known about Jesus. He's saying, you can put this always in remembrance. Prophecy is factual. Number two, 
Prophecy is faithful. Prophecy is faithful. Look at verse 19. Of back in 2 Peter 1, uh, verse 19, Peter continues. He's talking about how we can rely on what Peter's testimony is when he, as he says, when we may known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see, another barometer of true biblical prophetic messages is the fact that, it's, that they are always faithful to the rest of Scripture. They are always faithful to the rest of Scripture and the message of the Bible that you have in front of you, such as what Peter is meaning and striving to, to uh, get into his, these churches' minds when he says that no prophecy is of private interpretation. And that doesn't mean that we can't study the Word by ourselves. What that basically means is that no prophecy comes through your own conjuring. Again, that leads us back to that, that, what I said earlier. If someone says, I have a prophetic word from the Lord, you can run. This is God's prophetic word right here in front of you. It's the revelation of his own plan of salvation and what he's coming to do. His, the revelation of how he says in, in Revelation chapter 5, where he's talking about how he's going to make all things new. No, Revelation 21, 5. This is the revelation of that. Especially if that prophecy doesn't match up with the rest of the Scriptures. Because, as he says here, a true prophet doesn't prophesy of his own accord, as he says, by the will of man, as if it's coming out of him. But he speaks, as he says there, as he's moved by the Holy Ghost. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Moved there, carried, driven. It's reminiscent of that phrase that always appears that there's this, this like the Spirit of the Lord came upon them like a mighty rushing wind. See, we have this wonderful thing here where prophecy is not fabricated. It's It's given. It's given by the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and men are faithful to it. Men and women are faithful to it as they prophesy in the name of the Lord. But here Peter is saying prophecy is faithful. And again, I, I, I want to bring you to Scripture because this comes from Peter's own experience. Go with me to Luke chapter 24. By the way, if you want to know one of the most important chapters in your Bible... It's Luke 24. A lot happens in this chapter. A lot. <laughs> Especially not the least of which is the Emmaus Road encounter where Jesus comes upon those two disciples who are walking to Emmaus. But what I love is that Peter is here drawing as he's making this, this emphasis on what is truly prophetic and he's talking about Scripture and how it's faithful and how it's factual. He's drawing, I think, on this very moment. Because look at verse 44. 
This is after the Emmaus Road disciples. They've come and they've said that, that they suddenly realized that Jesus was in their midst. And then Jesus comes and he appears there right in everyone's midst. And notice what Jesus says in verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And then I love this. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. I said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses, spectators, eyewitnesses of these things. <laughs> this is, <laughs> we've, we started a men's Bible study on Saturday mornings. And I love it, but no Bible study is ever going to hold a candle to this Bible study right here in this room. <laughs> I would love to have been a fly in the wall in this Bible study as Jesus is opening up the understanding of these disciples by showing him what? Again, how that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Which leads us to the last thing. You can stay here in this text because prophecy is factual. Prophecy is faithful. But lastly, prophecy is focused. How in all things, how all things must be fulfilled, excuse me, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. see, I think Peter's drawing from this, <laughs> this evening spent in studying the Scriptures, <laughs> where Jesus opens their minds, opens their eyes, where Peter was made sure that all prophecy is focused on one particular thing. Actually, it's focused on one particular person. You might guess. <laughs> His name is Jesus. That's not just a Sunday school answer that just fills in the blank of any question that your Bible teacher says. He is the prophetic point. Jesus is the prophetic point. And this is why, if you go back to verse 19 of 2 Peter chapter 1, where he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Why? Because we have Jesus in the flesh. All those things that all the Old Testament prophets were pointing to, we have them. We touched him. We felt him. We spent time with him. And we were eyewitnesses. We were spectators to the spectacle of grace. This is a more sure word that you can bank on, you can stand on, you can rely on. Such is why he says in verse 19 again, We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That's Jesus. He's that light that shines in the darkness, as it says in Colossians, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all fullness dwells. He is the realization of all of the prophetic voices. It's Jesus in the flesh. God incarnate. And then we have this 
this truth that true prophecy is focused on Christ alone. It primarily deals with what he's been talking about in verse 2, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, his saviorship, his kingship, his sovereignty over all things. I was so moved as I was studying this particular passage. And I was moved by this paragraph that I want to read to you. Hopefully it will move you too. It comes from a writer, an old commentator named John Henry Jowett. And he's writing a commentary on the epistles of Peter. And he says this, he makes that, that, that bold statement that we said at the beginning. Prophecy, he says, quote, is not synonymous with prediction. When we use the sentence, which has almost become a proverbial phrase in our ordinary speech, and say, I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, we are employing the words almost entirely in the sense of forecast in the meaning of prevision, with the significance of unbosoming the secrets of tomorrow. <laughs> the element of prevision in a forecast is not entirely absent from the true equipment of the prophet, but it is not the primary element. I do not think anyone can declare principles without forecasting issues, but the burden of a true prophet is not the forecasting of an event, but the proclamation of a principle. True prophecy is declaration, not anticipation. It is vision, not prevision. A prophet is a man who foretells, but who primary forth-tells, telling forth a message which God has given to him. The prophet is a forth-teller of great truths, of dominant principles. He is a revealer of the great broad highways along which all the affairs of men move to inevitable destiny. I want then at once to put that primary meaning which we use in our modern interpretation of the word on one side and as far as possible to leave aside the secondary element of pre-vision. <laughs> I like what he says there. The burden of a true prophet is the proclamation of a principle. And I would actually say the burden of a true prophet is the proclamation of a person. That's what true prophecy circles around. Like we said earlier, a, a biblical prophet is not equivalent to a divine weatherman. Your scriptures that you have in front of you about prophecy, they are way more accurate than AccuWeather. Like way more accurate. And when you uh, go and read the scriptures, you're reading God's divine prophetic voice. You're reading about his son, Jesus Christ, who has come to bring to bear all of the, all of the majesty of the Father. And he's the one that all of this prophecy is focused on. And we too can find resolve and find steadfast assurance in. We can find so much abundant confidence, as he says here. We have a more sure word of prophecy. So Peter's saying, even after I'm dead and gone, you have prophecy in front of you, church. You don't have to rely on missives of apostolic authority. You have the authority of the word of God, Peter is saying. Such is why the church has been able to carry on its mission. Because we have the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us in the scriptures. And we too, we too are prophets given to prophesy to one particular person, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, 
I love this phrase. It actually comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Let me just read it to you. 1 Peter 1, verse 10 says, or I'll just back up a little bit. This is, we'll go there so you just see what I'm saying. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, where Peter says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And this salvation of your souls, how he says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace of that should come unto you. You want to know who that grace is? The grace that comes unto us is no one less than Jesus in the flesh. He's the manifestation of all of these prophetic voices. He is the affirmation that all of this prophecy about salvation and redemption and resurrection and restoration is true. And it's true because of who he is. God in the flesh. I'm so thankful that my faith, like precious faith, as Peter says, it stands on this sure word of prophecy. It stands on this person, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.